You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. A young girl feels her soul awakened to the call of emotions she cannot name. This is the twilight world where half-forgotten memories of childhood lead into a fantastic realm. Was it a wolf or a man you killed? When I killed it, it was a wolf. It turned into a man. Here, dreams become reality, and our darkest fantasies come true. Worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside, and when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. They say the Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. Gentlemen always keep their promises. What have you done with my granddaughter? Nothing she didn't want. (laughs) The Company of Wolves, where fairy tales end and nightmares begin. The Company of Wolves. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. October 2020. It continues with a look at Neil Jordan's The Company of Wolves. It's a melange of tales based on the writings of Angela Carter, which intertwine and layer upon one another. At the heart is a retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood tale, but there's more much more than that. We will be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen The Company of Wolves, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So, Heather, when was the first time you saw the movie, and what did you think? I first saw The Company of Wolves around, like, the early 90s. I definitely remember being in, like, my early teens, which is kind of a really perfect age to see this movie. And I'd read about it in, you know, in in film books before, so I had a vague idea, and I knew that David Warner was in it. So, of course, I had to see it because I love David Warner. And my first impressions, I thought it was that was one of the most beautiful, like, supernatural movies I'd ever seen. It was so impactful. And to this day, I think it may be just like one of the best coming of age movies. It's intense and just so stunning. It's a, it's a film that you want to enter into when you watch it. How about you, Kat? I just wrote really over sharing over personal blog on Sinista about this, so I'm not kind of going to be that personal here because it's a bit more public. But I saw this when I was about 11. So I was 10 when this came out. I saw it when it hit home video 
in the UK. And my mum rented it. She thought it would be a good film for me to see because my mum was very much like the grandma in Company of Wolves. She was like very suspicious of men all the time. So we watched it together. And as I said in that blog, it totally changed my perception of sexuality, of the potential for a woman's sexuality, the idea of embracing the wolf inside you, which is something we're told as girls don't stray from the path, you know, stay away from the beast. And it led me to Angela Carter just directly through the film. There was a lot at at the time, promos for it. She'd be interviewed. I mean, I was quite young then, so I hadn't really delved into her literature and I didn't really know who she was. So because of this film, I learned who she was and then later started reading her books. To say that it was like life-changing would be an understatement because it's a film that I caught. And Angela Carter then just informs most of my work. As I said to you guys earlier, I'm so glad to actually be here talking about Angela Carter and not shoehorning her into something else, which is like what I usually do. But, you know, to to a lot of people, I think a lot of my friends at school, they were kind of disappointed that it wasn't a flat out horror. This is was the time when a lot of kids were getting into an American werewolf in, in London in the Howling, for example. And so a lot of my friends at school found it disappointing because it wasn't on the level of those outright horror films. And they thought it was a bit weak. Whereas I, I've i always said it's more of a coming of age story. And I was coming of age, like slap bang when this was released. So it was just so like um, on point to what I was thinking about and what I was experiencing personally that it just really spoke to me. And as I said in my blog, I think it's like the first film I ever felt. Like we all have those films that we think are just speaking to us. I think that was the first time I ever I ever experienced that was with this film. And then it stayed with me all these years later, like over 35 years. I don't know how old is it now. <laughs> Lots of years later, it's like still, I'm here now talking about it because it's still just as important to me. I think I saw this one on cable. I was 12 when this came out and probably saw it when I was like 13, 14. And I was more like those boys that you're talking about as far as, hey, there are all these cool werewolf movies coming out, like Wolfen and The Haunting and what was it, Werewolf High or Full Moon High. This movie was so different from anything like that. And I did find it interesting that we had two very different wolf transformations in the movie, and they're really so beside the point, as opposed to like, American Werewolf in London, where we still look at the transformation scene of David even today and go, oh, wow, look at those special effects. That's really cool. And in this one, it's just like, man, these special effects. This is not the movie you want to watch if you're really into special effects, because some of them are rather offensive. (laughs) But the thing I remember the most was just the people turning into wolves at the, the party. And that was the indelible image. And I think they even used that as like the video box cover. And so I just left this movie alone for a lot of years, and it wasn't until we started putting together shows for this year. And because of you, Kat, talking about Angela Carter and about the Bloody Chamber and all of this, that I was just like, okay, let's do it. Let's sit down. Let's watch this movie. Let's do an episode on it. And I'm really glad that we did, because I was fascinated by it, watching it. I was just so 
thrilled to see so many different, you know, Freudian interpretations of what's going on, the symbolism, the way that the storytelling is happening. You know, we've done a whole series of shows on fairy tales and the way that they can be played with. So this hit all of the right boxes for me. That's what I was thinking about it, rewatching the film in preparation for this. Because as a kid, I I loved the special effects. And I'm, I'm fine with them now, but it's kind of like I could see where kids, you know, that were wanting like this big old gory werewolf, a go-go epic, like so many of the aforementioned films we got in the 80s. If they rented this, they're like, huh? Like, what? <laughs> It's a film that kind of actually, it seems like much like Carter's work, like her literary work. It, it doesn't really fully conform to any one genre or box or construct. That's something that's always extremely appealing to me, because I always think if you want real innovation, real innovation is always going to lie in an area that you can't chain it. You can't, you know, tether it to a leash. It's got to just be free. This film is just, it's, it's it has so many gifts, and it is like, it's like a wild piece of art. The coming of age thing does tend to, or did confuse a lot of people, at the time, but to me, like I loved American Werewolf. I was a huge fan of that film as well. But the Company of Wolves, to me, like always belong much more to the dark fantasy stuff. So things like Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, which I was obviously we've done Dark Crystal with Mike a couple of years ago now, and it it belonged much more to that the dark fantasy that was coming out in the eighties. So. It didn't really bother me that it didn't turn out to be like a specifically a horror film. It seemed to belong to a, a completely different world. Although it has got like references to ha- like visual references to Hammer Horror in it, which was another thing that I was a huge fan of as a kid. Like that village could be the village in the Gorgon. It's like this unnamed European village. And everyone's got different accents, I've noticed. And Sarah Patterson sounds really posh. And then her mum is kind of Irish, although I'm not quite sure. And then the grandmother is totally different. And it's like, but it, it seems to come from this like very British fantasy-based thing. And I just think that's wonderful. So I was probably a bit more... I don't know, receptive to it anyway, because those, you know, Labyrinth is one of my favorite films of all time. I just saw it as being part of that movement rather than part of what was happening in horror at the time. Yeah, I feel bad even describing this as a horror film. Like, I've watched this a few times now with my wife, who is not a fan of horror films at all. And there's nothing in here where she was just like, yeah, turn this off. She was just absolutely fine with it because it is more of a coming of age story. It is more of the fairy tale. The most fascinating part about this movie is in the telling of it, the way that stories are layered. And we've talked on the show about Saragossa manuscript before. We've talked about other films that really challenge you as far as the different levels of storytelling. I was tracking all of that the last time that I watched it. And I thought that we might have gone four levels deep, but I think we only ever go three levels deep. But it's nice that there's this wrapper of a dream that's happening. And then we come back to that a few times. I thought that maybe we would just start and end with the dream, but we actually see bits of that, the the real world, quote unquote, as we're going through this. And then we see this majority story, which is set in this, as you said, unnamed village. And then from there, it is 
Granny telling two stories, the Angela Lansbury character telling two stories. So we go into these stories and then eventually it is Rosaline, who's played by Sarah Patterson, telling two stories. So it's like she's picking up the idea of storytelling from her grandmother, who's trying to Granny is cautioning, but at the same time, she's very titillating. It feels like she's really (laughs) saying like, you really shouldn't go near these men because they will just fuck the shit out of you and you will enjoy it way too much. Oh, it's totally that. If you notice as well with the stories, I love the fact that Granny's stories are like warnings, whereas uh, Rosaline's stories are like more sympathetic to the walls. To go into the like the stretcher. So the whole thing is basically based on a number of Angela Carter's stories. Uh, she wrote a lot of short stories. You know, she was an author and essayist and she wrote radio plays and she wrote short stories. And I really love her short stories. So there's bits, you can find bits of the company walls in all these different stories that she wrote. But the theme of women embracing the beast and becoming the beast is also something that continues throughout her work. She has a lot of women or female characters that reoccur that have animalistic traits or they are physically like animals. I mean, even in something like Dr. Hoffman novel that she did, there's a whole scene in that with a brothel where the women are like part animal. It's like some weird bestiality brothel. But it was something that she continued on with. And I think the really clever thing about because she got together with Neil Jordan and they worked together on the script, although most of it is obviously Carter. And you can see that some of it is very, very faithful to it. Then started as a radio play and it's very, very faithful to that original idea. Apart from the Danielle Dax segment, I think, which Neil Jordan slotted in with the uncredited reference to Valerie in a week of wonders, <laughs> just like the uncredited reference to V at the beginning of the film as well. But he was only like Night of the Hunter was his main reference, according to him. I think it's really clever because what they did with it, it was they took these these stories that were loosely linked by theme and then they put them into a dream. And so by doing that, nothing has to really make sense. There don't there doesn't have to be any continuity. It can go into the fantastic. It doesn't have to be explained. And I just think this really clever. And I think that's why they keep reminding us it's a dream, because if we're in a dream, anything can happen. And I think a lot of filmmakers, apart from perhaps someone like Cocteau, are always like really scared of this. They'll go into a dream, but then that dream's also really logical. Like dreams are not logical. And so by giving it the dream, well, we're in a dream, and then all the little bits that are a bit weird and a bit surreal and don't quite add up, you just think, yeah, but this is a dream. And I think there was a wonderful quote in that documentary by uh, the BBC documentary by one of her former students who who sort of said, you know, as long as you set things up, as long as what you write is real to that world, which we're in a dream world, then nothing else matters. You can do anything you want. And I think this is like very much the case with The Company of Wolves, bringing together all the best parts of Angela Carter's short stories, but presenting them in this world that, you know, isn't necessarily logical, but it doesn't have to be because, you know, we're in a a tortured teen's head, basically. 
there's so much like animal sort of like symbology throughout. I mean, sometimes it's literally an animal and it's not just wolves, but like you constantly see owls and frogs. Granny's stole like comes to life her arm she has like this is it ermine like an ermine stole and it like will growl it's like a marx brothers thing almost like when mark at a woman's stole i don't know why they made me think of harpo probably because it's my favorite marks but um but there's so much you know and i mean like the moths like at one point there's just you know this sort of like unreal but beautiful looking moth kind of flittering about her her lit candle and that's something I really loved. And it's not many directors, in my experience, will kind of just go whole hog on that. Like, the, you know, except for people that are kind of, you know, Chicago. I also think of, like, Hordorowski, who always uses a lot of animals in his films to kind of, you know, to paint a bigger picture. The thing, too, is um, with the whole coming of age thing, and that's something uh, me and Kat kind of talked about um, via messages, I think, yesterday, is that. It's so, I think something that's so refreshing and probably why it definitely kind of spoke to both of us as adolescents, you know, as adolescent girls too, is that there's like an honesty to it. You can tell that it's not just that a woman wrote it, but it's Angela Carter, you know, it's the woman <laughs> you know, writing it that, that gives it kind of that, that honesty of just like, of yeah, like, you know, you're coming into your own and you're coming into your sexuality and it's, it's, you know, it's titillating, it's frightening, especially trying to, like, do it in a world that will condemn a woman's sexuality, but exploit it at the same time. And so many coming-of-age films that focus on female protagonists seem to be kind of pervy, you know, for lack of a better term. Like, you always feel like the person writing and directing it's some older man with a boner. Well, it's like those scenes in Slashes, isn't it? How, how some 40-year-old guy imagines girls talk in the shower um, which is like, I, I remember when we used to do, uh, PE, we called gym at school, you know, the shower, like everyone was afraid to go in the shower because everyone was just so embarrassed. No one stood around naked, you know, washing their bush, talking about fucking guys. Like that never happened. But that, like, if you watch films, that's what all young women do. When I wrote about it recently, 11 or 12, we we really are really uncomfortable with, I think, because we don't want to sexualize young girls. So it's always that very difficult. Uh, we, we have no problem talking about young men's sexuality, about locker talk, locker room talk, about guys at 13 getting interested in, in wanking and looking at girls. That seems to be absolutely acceptable. But talking about young girls is always one of those really taboo things because we don't like to over-sexualize them, but we're also frightened for them. We want to protect them. But I think, and the world is a scary place. If you're a, if you're a teenage girl, it is a scary place. You will just get random men come from, like, grown men propositioning you. <laughs> or that's what happened to me. And, and so it's really difficult and people don't like to talk about it in case people think they're, they're that way inclined and have a weird interest in young girls. So it becomes really, really taboo. And even for young girls to talk about sex, I remember when I was a teen, it was all about virtue and who was the most virtuous and who was still a virgin. And even young girls would collaborate in slut shaming or, uh, perpetuating these myths about sex but young girls do have a burgeoning sexuality they have their own fantasies they start to become interested in sex around the same time as guys do 
but they don't have a space to really talk about that because there's so much judgment and shame and fear. And I think the one thing Angela Carter did for me was to open up a door to say, actually, no, you know, you, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to feel ashamed or frightened. You do have your own power. And I think that was mind blowing to me. You can also be the beast. And I think this idea of just men have the beast, it's like perpetuated. If you look at how many werewolf films are compared about men, compared to how, like, usually women before things like The Company of Wolves, they turn into animals, but it's more of a, like, shape-shifty thing. They might turn into a moth or, like, something slightly less threatening. But the werewolf thing has always been, like, a male thing because men are expected to have this inner beast and it really annoys me. And sorry to any Ginger Snap fans who were listening in, but in recent years, all I see is Ginger Snaps. It changed the way for the werewolf and it made it female and blah. No, sorry. Angela Carter was doing this in the 70s and the company of wolves did this in 1984. It's just everyone else is looking the other way because it doesn't fit into that genre thing. So it's almost sidelined and it's like, Carter was doing this when nobody else would talk about it. We were just right slap bang in the middle of second wave feminism when she really rose to prominence. And most of the feminists were anti-sex or talking about how sex was dangerous and we needed to get away from the oppression of men through sex and all sex was rape. And she went against that and actually wrote the Sardian women and celebrated the Sard and talked very openly about the fact that girls are sexual, about the fact that women are sexual. She totally, but they didn't understand her then. Now, like suddenly, like they said in that documentary, now, all these years later, unfortunately after her death as well, we're suddenly now the light bulb's coming on and people are thinking, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, what she was saying was was right. You know, sex is dangerous, but it's also exciting. And that makes it very complicated, like very, very complicated to talk about if you're a woman. With the film's constant refrain of not straying from the path, we're all raised in a society that encourages, quote unquote, sort of acceptable behaviors. If you don't tow a certain line, then, you know, untold dangers could happen to you. Straying from the path is where you find, like, freedom, and danger. And also, I have to remark on the fact that I, I chuckled when she goes into the dream and, and the sequence of her annoying older sister who keeps calling her pest. Yes. Her sister gets killed <laughs> by the wolves. It's like, <laughs> I love that. I was like, oh, Rosalie. Like, that's, <laughs> I mean, I grew up an only child, but I could totally see many a sibling having that kind of fantasy of just being, you know, well, you know, haha, <laughs> call me a pest. <laughs> I love the world of this movie, just that everything is shot on the soundstage and it is so well, except for the, the wraparound, um, the, the, the very opening, I should say, where we're going through the woods. We've got the, the car going through the woods as well with David Warner and his wife's, uh, the character and, and those horrible credits. I don't know what it is about those credits, but they look so cheap. And it like that really threw me out for a minute. I was just like, oh, these are the worst titles I've seen in a long time. 
but the rest of the movie is all shot on the soundstage, but it's such a lush world. And you're talking about Alice in that dream. And I love that the sister's name is Alice. So we're immediately we're thinking Alice in Wonderland. And there are all of those huge phallic mushrooms all over. I mean, obviously, you two guys have read my erotic fiction that I'm working on. Under the title The Chamber of Beasts, which is inspired by Carter and Borovchek, who were both. And yeah, now you said phallic mushrooms. I, I always have like weird things with food and uh, plants and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wondered, like, I'm, I just thought, I'm like, oh yeah, that's where it comes from. <laughs> I mean, and these mushrooms are what, three, four feet tall? It's just amazing. There's, that's the uh, Johnny Wad species of fungus. My, I don't know if you know that. That is the actual scientific name for them. <laughs> I think you guys have both mentioned the animals, and the animals are just everywhere in here. I can't imagine what it took to shoot this, to have all of these wranglers on set, to have the frogs, the the moths, the spiders, the snakes. The, there's the, the snakes hanging off of the branches. I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, a couple weeks ago, Kat, we talked about Fruit of Paradise, and it's just like, okay, yeah, I can really see some Christian symbolism going on in here. It's just, it, it's wonderful, this world that they have, this whole village is all on a set. All these woods are on a set. It just, it's such a, a wonderful way to control this environment and also make it feel very otherworldly but not necessarily false i think neil jordan to me is the most important contemporary filmmaker that delves into gothic through three films this one interview with the vampire which i absolutely adore and i know heather loves it and byzantium are in terms of gothic film he really gets the idea of the the perversity that's in gothic and the more fantasy elements because gothic was inspired by fairy tales and folklore but then it becomes very formal i think through just through a school of british writers who are very very formal it loses the more whimsical elements and angela carter put those back in angela carter was inspired talking of fruit and paradise she was a huge admirer of European film, especially Eastern European film as well. She was very, very cine literate. Uh, one of the things I loved, keep talking about that documentary, but it was amazing. She uh, described Japan, what was it, as if Fellini had reimagined Alphaville when she went there in the 60s. And she just, she was very cinematic, I think, in the way she thought about things and a lot of her writing is the stuff that you would find in a Terry Gilliam film, for example. She basically took those elements, those different culture elements, and she and then she put them back into fairy tales. She like put them back into traditional Gothic uh, with all the perversity. Because all those fairy tales are like her. If you look at them, they're all about don't stray from the path, never trust a man who's like, like they're, they're basically like moral fables to warn, especially young girls, you know, be home by 12 o'clock or you'll turn into a pumpkin, you know, all, all that stuff. And she said that she saw in them, you know, this phallic imagery that they would, they were dangerous, that they were like sexual. So she comes along and reinstates that. And then you get someone like Neil Jordan who really gets it on a visual level. And I think the coming together of those two is just absolutely magic. Just like when you get Neil Jordan adapt Anne Rice. I remember 
even though I loved The Company of Wolves. I was really nervous when they announced the film version of the book, because I loved the book. And it, like, even with, because of Tom Cruise, because I fucking hate him. And uh, <laughs> I just said in a vlog recently that, you know, the, the, the irony of having, like, your least favorite actor in your fav- one of your favorite films is just, like, you know, because he's perfect. And I should have trusted Jordan, I think. A lot better than Stuart Townsend. Ugh. Yes. Did not get me started. <laughs> Don't even go there. <laughs> I was going to lose it now. When we did the Kolchak show, we talked all about Stuart Townsend. He was the worst Kolchak you could possibly get, maybe only seconded by the worst vampire Lestat. Jesus Christ. And corn? I'm sorry. No, I don't even know. Heaven's off now. No, that's, I, I can't, I completely and 100% agree though about Neil Jordan. And especially because like reading about it is like they were on such a limited budget with Company of Wolves. I think he had this classic line about, you know, we had 12 trees and we had to like make it look like a forest, but you would never, ever know. Uh, about any of that watching the movie because it does it just looks so rich it's just one of those movies like i want to burrow into you know and 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 just it's it's completely just it captures the true magic of fantasy and not and i hate it because now i think when people think hear the word fantasy they think you know orcs you know (laughs) and trees (laughs) trees walking or whatever you know and that's part of it too but there's so much more to it and i think um just this this combination of of jordan and carter well they both loved eastern european films there's the influence of valerie in a week of wonders and car there was actually a really good essay on that defunct Kino Eye website, which was this, this amazing resource about Eastern European film that shut down, I think, in 2012. But it's still there. Like, the, the pieces are still there. And there's an amazing piece on there about Valerie and how that possibly inspired Carter. And she was going out and she was watching Eastern European fantasy films, which I know Mike loves because he obviously dedicates like a whole month of the year to doing them every year. And on top of that, you had Jordan, who loved things like Barofchek's Lamarge and Blanche, and he references the Saragossa manuscript in his commentary, doesn't reference uh, Valerie. There's also a clear, when we see the sister lying in her coffin, and this the first story kicks off, is obviously a clear visual reference to V, the Russian fantasy horror, because she's got exactly the same sort of flower crown, the way she's positioned. Uh, so I think you had like a rare meeting of these minds who were like totally on the same page. Uh, the only sad thing about it is that they had imagined a different ending. I think they were going to have the two wolves come into the bedroom and then it's a girl and a boy wolf and they jump into this, the floor becomes water and they jump into it and they couldn't afford to do it. So you get like a slightly different ending that's maybe not as powerful. The budget they had was like tiny, I think like half a million pounds or something ridiculous. And yet you have all these amazing actors like Angela Lansbury, like David Warner, like, you know, like real good stock brian glover yeah brian glover. another holdover from american werewolf in london every time i see him i i always think so halfway over the ocean the engines run low on petrol 
So they have to lighten the plane. So they heave out all the baggage. But it's still too heavy. So they chuck out all the seats. But it's still too heavy. Finally, this froggy steps up, shouts, Vive la France! And leaps out. Then an Englishman. He steps up, shouts, God save the Queen! And he leaps out. But the plane is still too heavy. So the Yank delegate from Texas, he steps up, shouts, Remember the Alamo! And jokes out the Mexican! <laughs> I feel sorry for Brian Glover because he was such a presence, like in British TV, and just like, you know, he was like the northern man. But he only gets remembered now for American Werewolf, like he's the guy from. But it's like, yeah, he was like a real presence at the time in British TV and film and stuff. And he's wonderful. It's just Angela Lansbury, she's incredible. And right in the middle, she was she doing like murder she wrote at this time as well. So she was like big news. And she's just so wonderful. It's so kind of weirdly perverse and gleeful. Like when she's saying those stories and the little looks and she's got so much humor in her performance. She's so good. Oh, I love love her in this movie and especially because i love this character because it's you know she does kind of speak into what you guys were mentioning earlier it's like she she on one hand is all about like don't stray from the path but then like she's she basically insults priests and organized religion yeah yeah, she's all (laughs) ripping on that priest and talking about how they have babies and all these things bastards children and and then, like, having the mother, like, you notice, like, when the mo- when Rosaline later on the film is going by herself to trek to grandmother's house, the mother gives her a bottle, and it's clearly alcohol. Like, she's giving liquor to granny. I'm like, this is the kind of grandma I wish I had grown up with. Yeah, and it's like moonshine as well. She says, to Rosaline says to the wolf, you know, you need to be careful with that because it's like 100% proof or whatever. And <laughs> it's just like they're making moonshine for the grandmother, who is just... It was just really wonderful. I think Angela Carter said she based the grandmother on her own grandmother. And uh, and my grandmother and my mother was like it, but my grandmother was even more like that grandmother. He, she just thought men were useless. She had like 10 kids. She got, got divorced from my granddad in the mid-70s. And she just thought men were shit. And she would just tell them they were shit all the time. So it just kind of reminds me of that. I remember this old dude asking her out at the bingo. And she was just like, get away from here, you pervert. She does like say things like that. And I'm like, he's just trying to be nice. And Angela Lansby just... It's a very working class British type of archetype. The matriarch who is outspoken, very feisty, is like a bit of a stereotype, but so many of us had like women who were like that in our lives. And I think Angela Carter plays tribute to those characters. So she's not saying they're totally wrong. She's sort of celebrating aspects of them. Like I think a lot of people I know had a granny like the grandma who would go up and tell a priest to fuck off or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> and she's like, oh, he can't hear you. He's deaf. <laughs> he sat right underneath him. And there is that weird, because we never see the mother and the grandmother in the same shot. And it's always like the mother talking about the grandmother. And there's obviously a real dislike between the mother and the grandmother, yeah. which is a nice tension to have because it is very much like the mother-in-law kind of thing. 
the mother is very interesting, especially when Rosaline witnesses the primal scene and then is asking the mother later about... Mommy? Yes, pets? Does he hurt you? Does who hurt me? Does Daddy hurt you? When... No, not at all. Sounds like... Like what? Like the beast Granny talked about. You pay too much attention to your granny. She knows a lot, but she doesn't know everything. And if there's a beast in men, it meets its match in women too. And I love that she is embracing her sexuality there, that she's saying, no, I like to fuck too. It's really nice. I love that line. Well, I mean, she's married to David Warner. Of course she does. Jesus, I mean. David Warner. <laughs> My God. Oh, I, You know, when I saw this movie as a kid, that scene where Rosalind sees her parents copulating I, in my head as a fevered little adolescent Heather, that scene was like five minutes long and like so hot because it was David Warner. And now I'm like, man, if I go on Rosaline for not vomiting, because let's the reality is nobody wants to see or hear their parents have sex. And inevitably, most of us will hear things at the very least. And God, if any of you guys walked on them, uh, my prayers and thoughts to you all, because it's gross. Nobody wants to think about that. But the film handles it just so smartly. And, and yeah, man, David Warner. Whew. Terence Stamp as well, who didn't I, I? I wrote about this years ago, and I I can't remember where I got the quote from. But didn't Terence Stamp do this for the price of his suit or something? Which I think is wonderful. Like he's only in it for a few minutes, but it's Terence Stamp for Christ's sake. It's like you know, it's the devil in his Rolls Royce, which is beautiful. Yeah, he is just wonderful, and apparently he's got like a little pygmy skull in his hand that he's carrying which i love that he, that was like a little totem for him i love that the same actress who's playing rosaline is the driver of the car with this blonde wig on i mean the story that's being told as far as be careful what you want and this this boy in the forest who wants to be a man i think and that's why he gets this potion from the devil and then he starts to to put it on his chest and the chest hair grows, which is interesting because we talk a lot about hair in this movie as far as beware of men who are hairy on the inside. And so he's got this hair coming out. He's becoming a man, but then it becomes suddenly like the evil dead in the trees and the forest start attacking him. He gets like tree raped. Well, that was how I read it now with the evil dead thing, in which I wasn't watching when I was 11. That was <laughs> later on. There is this like weird uh, theme about nature and how dangerous it is. It's like, it reminds me of that wonderful speech by Werner Herzog when he's talking about the jungle and the chaos of the jungle and the birds are screaming in agony and, you know, it's just like death. Of course, there's a lot of misery but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. It's got that same sort of vibe of a Werner Herzog jungle where everything is like comes to life. Everything is really dangerous. Even the trees are dangerous. It's, but they're also really fascinating because of that. It's like you read my mind. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you mentioned that speech because I kept hearing like Herzog. He uses the word erotical and that speech, but he's using it not in, not in a way that's titillating, but just like, you know, it's like it's erotical the same way like death is. 
Yeah, and it's it's oh my gosh, yeah. It's a and everybody, your homework assignment after this episode: uh, watch Burden of Dreams <laughs> by Les Blake. That speech show is like one of my favorite things because it's just so true. But it's the way he says it, you know, the birds are not singing; they're screaming in agony. That's <laughs> it's weird that Jordan said that he got the animals watching the people from Night of the Hunter, which seemed to be like one of the only references he was forthcoming on. I would have preferred to hear him talk about the other lots like sort of lesser known references. It's quite frustrating because he's not that forthcoming. Maybe he thought people wouldn't be interested in talking about a film like Valerie in a Week of Wonders because, you know, it wasn't a film that a lot of people had seen around that time. Maybe he thought, you know, there's no point because no one will be interested in it. I know Angela Carter wrote about Eastern European cinema and stuff and she was really into that, but... Jordan, I don't know, he was a bit more guarded on that, although he did. I found a very old interview with him, I think it's from 1991, Guilty Pleasures, which I fucking hate that term. But he was talking about how much he loved Barofchek, and you can tell, like, Barofchek and Angela Carter seem to come from the same universe. If you look at The Beast, which is an adaptation of uh, Prosper Merrimi's Loki, about a man who marries a woman and then he turns into a bear because apparently his mother was raped by a bear and, you know, it's like a 18th century, like, novella, I guess you'd call it, or a very long, short story. Borovchek adapted that very much in the same way as uh, Carter was looking at Saxon, that this woman goes to marry this guy who may or may not be a beast and in the process of that she starts to develop her own or starts to figure out her own sexual identity and starts to have these fantasies. It's like a really surreal interpretation of the Merrimi story, which is more like a folktale. But they definitely exist in this same universe, which I think is incredible. And it was something I was totally unaware of in 1984. I didn't know that world existed. And obviously, years later, I'm obsessed with it. And I think I was so receptive to it because of Angela Carter, it just seemed familiar to me in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, but I totally embraced it because I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is like this. Like it gave me like a point of reference to understand it. Whereas I know there are a lot of people who see something like The Beast and they're confused by it. They're like, what is this film about? But to me, it like totally made sense. It was like an Angela Carter story, just with a, a, a wrecked penis and uh, horse sex. There's the same willingness to sort of flip the script with classical sort of fairy tales. You know, we have Beauty slaying the beast in the beast, but she slays them not with violence, but with with love, with sex. And um, we should all be so lucky to go out that way. (laughs) Well, that was the thing. She was just obsessed with this idea of beasts. So in the bloody chamber, there's two Beauty and the Beasts. And in one, the girl becomes the beast, and in the other, through sex, she's able to tame the beast in the man. She adapted the Earl King, which in which a woman sort of gets skinned like a rabbit is the term that she's used, and turned into a bird by this goblin king. And she wants to, she fantasizes about killing the goblin king. There is another one where a woman, uh, not in the bloody chamber, I'm blanking on what it's called, but there's one where a woman who's a slave escapes by turning into an animal. I mean, she was absolutely obsessed with this stuff, and it's fascinating because I can't think of any other writer 
apart from Barofchek in film, he was really looking at fairy tales in this way and what they meant, like those really Freudian animal messages in them. A lot of fairy tales tend to be uh, all traditional fairy tales. They tend to be like very traditional formal adaptations that reinforce the moral message. But those original fairy tales were not like that. They were actually really dangerous. Like the original Cinderella, you had the stepsister cutting off her own toes to fit the slipper. Little Red Riding Hood's really about cannibalism. There's just so, and, and Cancel and Gretel is about cannibalism. And they were dangerous, but they got so muted, I think, through our fiction and then our cinema in places like Disney. People don't recognize them anymore. But I think Angela Carter wanted to go in and like drag out those really dangerous things in a really, you know, she's not flat out erotica, but some of the stuff that she's, some of the lines that turn up in her books are like some of the most exciting prose I've ever read in my life is a line in a blue beard one, cunt like a split fig. It's just like, whoa, how do you even think of a line like that? It's incredible. It's so profane and it's explanatory and like, whoa, it's just like, yeah. Like you were saying, it is very similar to Valerie in a Week of Wonders, and which we've talked about before as far as the way that it is. I mean, it really takes place during her first period, and it is in that liminal space of transition between girl and woman. And Rosaline is very much in that space. I think she was the actress was actually only fourteen at the time. I think, which is pretty remarkable that we get such a great performance from her. And I don't think that she was a film actress before this. I'm really sad because she kind of disappeared. Yeah, I think she only did what three other things apart from this, but she was fantastic in this movie. The only thing I can put it on a par with was the stuff that Jennifer Connelly was doing at the same time with Labyrinth and also uh, Dario Argento's Phenomena uh, is very much in that similar space where you have a young girl who has like a psychic connection to animals and insects. And I always love it when the like Jallo bros snag off Phenomena. They're like, yeah, what was that film about? That's when Dario Argento went shit because I find Phenomena really just a really fascinating it's just like a weird warped fairy tale that has these same aspects and she was like around 14 or 15 when she was doing things like labyrinth there was this like little pocket of films that were very much about like you said that liminal space that that transition where you suddenly become sexual even though you're still a child which has a very specific meaning if you're female like, all of a sudden, you go from being a little girl where everyone around you is like, oh, aren't you lovely, and let's wrap you up and protect you, to suddenly guys saying, I love your tits. And it's like a weird, it's a weird, weird space to do it. The thing I love about Rosaline is she's like her own hero. She She's not frightened by it, and she, um, I've perhaps because of her mother's influence, I don't know. But she's very tenacious. She doesn't let it get to her. She doesn't let it frighten her. And she has like a very strong sense of who she is, which maybe isn't that realistic, but it sets a really good role model, I think, for anyone of that age who's who's watching it. She's like a really good role model. Whereas uh, Jennifer Connolly in Labyrinth, she's also a very strong character, but there are parts of her that are kind of traditional and quite weak and she 
opts for the, you know, more conventional ending to her story. Whereas I would have so, and I've talked to Heather about this, like we would have so been running off with the Goblin King. Fuck that kid. Oh God. And in New York minute and a new, I, I literally was telling Kat, I would daydream when I was a little kid about having a baby brother just to like sell him. It, so I could be with the Goblin King, which is I probably like why my mother never, ever had kids after me. It's, it's probably I don't like the look in Heather's eyes when she's watching that movie. That yes, that Rosaline is she is such a great, strong character. And the fact that you have a young protagonist who she rescues herself, like she doesn't need to be rescued. Like she's just sort of smart and brave enough to navigate herself. Um which is such a cool, inspiring thing to see. Like, because you don't see that. I don't think you see that uh, a, a lot at all, especially with anything like aimed at kids. No, because it's too awkward. It's too dangerous to talk about that, I think. People feel very, very uncomfortable talking about it. And a, a film like Valerie is, is very much the same thing. And the actress in that was like 14. It's all about this, this period in your life where you hit like 12, 13, 14, say. So you're still emotionally a child, but you suddenly realize you have this immense power that is to do with set, with sex. And you suddenly get all this attention. People start treating you in a completely different way. And it's how you deal with that. But the the problem is we don't talk to girls about how they should deal with that. We do what, and I'm, you know, not, I've not only been a teenage girl, but then I raised one and I was like crazy mother. I caught my daughter sneaking out at 14, which is something I totally would have done at that age. I followed her up the road with my Rottweiler and then threatened the kid <laughs> she was greeting. <laughs> Yeah, pro sex, pro sex, unless it's my own daughter. And then I was. Uh... <laughs> but you do, I did realize there had to come a time when I had to let go and just be more honest with her and talk about it in a more open way. I think it's hard to do that, though. We feel, we, we find it really difficult with girls. Whereas I had four boys. I never worried about them going out and doing stuff because they were boys. And that's like the accepted thing. Like you don't worry so much. Your son's not going to come back pregnant, for example. And it's very unlikely you'll be sexually abused or raped either, although it does happen, but not necessarily, you know, if he's walking down the road from the bus stop. So it is like terrifying. And I think because we're scared of it, we're scared to talk about it. And we're scared to say to girls... Yes, you do have this power and it is sexual, but you, and you can own that and you can have your own boundaries and you can have your own desires. We don't like to give permission for girls to do that. What we do is we panic and we try and stop it happening. We, we say, Oh, no, 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 no. Stay away from that. That's bad, bad. Everything's bad. Don't look at that. Don't, you know. It's a really difficult one. I think this film is one of the few films that actually talks about this. You know, what happens when you suddenly turn up at, not that any of us go to church, but you turn up at church and suddenly all the boys are like, I know South Park did that episode on it, didn't they? Where, is it Wendy? She suddenly grows brass and all the boys are suddenly like, they're controlled by them. (laughs) So South Park talked about it, but yeah, something we don't really see 
spoken about in in film specifically but even like um i'm not saying i'm a people will say oh there's this young adult fiction that does this not what i was reading in the 80s i was reading things like pretty in pink which is like disgusting and all flowers in the attic which is about incest babies so it's like you know there was nothing comparable there was nothing that was saying hey you know, this is what you're dealing with, but actually, you know, there are, you, you can develop boundaries. It is okay to feel sexual, but it can be on your own terms. I think is what I'm saying. Like Heather says, where else do you see that? Maybe in more modern films, but I'm talking about then. Well, and I'm so glad you brought up the, with young adult novels, because honestly, when I was a teen, the only book I ever remember reading that kind of came close to having, like a female, and this isn't like magical, you know, at all. It's just kind of a regular, just like, quote unquote, sort of true to life story was Judy Bloom's Forever. The character, she's a teenager going through a journey about having sex, and they keep having sex, and she's prepared for it. And they they break up and they move on. She doesn't get pregnant. She doesn't get a disease. She's not punished, quote unquote. And of course, you know, which is of all of Judy Bloom's books, the one that always tends to get banned uh, from libraries forever was dangerous so isn't it (laughs) encouraging these girls to go and do things it's the one thing that we are still really scared of maybe not well like talking about anything to do with young girls and sex i noticed mike sat awkwardly very quiet (laughs) (laughs) in the background there truly the only real like warning message i think in in blooms forever was that when when guys name their penises ralph like why would you call your your penis ralph like it's ralph Ralph. Brampton. hey baby you want to see ralph you know it's not sexy it's it's not in the 80s like as far as like teen culture was we had a lot of these magazines, like, and I'm blanking on what they were called because they were so shit, but I would read them, like, 17, which was basically 12-year-olds reading it, and with these photos, you remember those photos, what do they call them? It's like a comic strip, but it's like photos. What do they call those? Like a photo montaging. They're not drawn. They're like actors. <laughs> I'd like to call it a fumetti. That's <laughs> 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 the Italian comics. I know. If there's sorry. a name for it, but I can't think. And they'd have a lot of those. And it was all to do with um, one being the perpetual virgin. And there'd always be a boyfriend who was try- like trying to put the pressure on. Whilst also appeasing your boyfriend's ego. Like, that was basically the mixed message. You know, say no, because otherwise you're a slut, but don't piss him off too much. Because he might then, there's always like a thing where she turns up and sees him with another girl. And that's what we were consuming at the time. So the company of walks comes along like a Molotov cocktail in the middle of that and says, no girl, stop reading that as shit. Oh, gosh. I know. I remember actually making the decision to stop reading teen magazines, I think, like in eighth grade, because it just it, it hit me. I'm like, all of these articles about just like not being your own person. It's all about how to get a boy, how to keep a boy, how to please a boy. And it's like, and yeah, I mean, I wanted to be with a boy then because, you know, teenager, but I'm like, not like this. Like, gosh, of course, I say boy, I I wanted to be with David Warner, not any of the kids I was in school with because teenage boys are terrible. Um, That's the other thing like teenage girls have to be wary of too. (laughs) It's 
just like you. Well, that <laughs> is the one thing that I love, and Labyrinth does it as well to a certain extent, is it reinforces this thing like this teenage boy, the, the kid that goes after Rosaline, is an idiot. And, you know, you're better off with the weird, pervy, aristocrat werewolf because he's far more sexy and is probably going to give you a better time of it in bed. Amorous Boy doesn't even have a name. I love that he he's just Amorous Boy. And yeah, he's a total shit. He's such an idiot. He is he's such horrible, an idiot. isn't he? He runs off and he leaves her in the forest. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'll protect you. And then he runs away at the first sight of anything. That scene where he comes back and both David Warner and the mother whoop up on him. And then they start fighting the dad, too, because dad's like, don't you touch my boy. And David Warner's like, punched him in the face. Oh, and so and then Rosalie just comes back like like nothing's. <laughs> I literally in my notes, I refer to Amherst boy as blonde Mike Hucknell. Is that his name? <laughs> simply rad? Oh, my like, God. No, Mick Hucknell. Oh, my God, he is. <laughs> And that's not a good thing. Like, you no, don't. No, it's not. It's, it's really not. <laughs> After watching this a few times, there are a few themes that I picked up on that I thought were interesting as far as the idea of somebody being forgotten or left behind. I mean, they describe the woman who turns the whole wedding party into wolves as being a forgotten woman, as opposed to the Stephen Rhea character who is a traveling man and this whole thing of like, oh, he up and left. He's a traveling man. You can't trust people like this. She, the wife, goes on with her business after he gets up to, quote unquote, make water. And she goes on, remarries, has a couple kids, and then he comes back and then punishes her for her moving on with her life, which is very scary. And he suddenly becomes this domestic abuser. It's like, what the fuck, man? And that's one of two transformation scenes that we get. I wanted to look up to see if the person that worked on special effects for this also worked on effects of Life Force, because the way that Steven Rhea's face looks and the way that the, the wolf looks after the skin is gone, and I love that transformation that all the skin uh, gets ripped off. It's kind of like uh, the one character in Nightbreed who's carving off his own skin. But it looked a lot like Life Force to me, just the way that these this dummy was animated it, it felt very life forcey the pain of the transformation is a fascinating thing this idea that you know you don't just turn into a wolf and it's like this dramatic amazing thing but you know you're literally tearing your own skin off is incredible and i know they didn't have a lot of money for the effects but it just the concept of it to me feels terrifying that you're forced to like rip off pieces of your Skin, which again seems like a very Angela Carter thing. Like, like I said, the Earl King, she has a, 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 the Earl King basically, he's like the goblin king in the forest and he lures these young girls in and he seduces them and he's nice to them. But there comes a point when he skins them like a rabbit, then keeps them as birds in cages. And uh, to go back to Herzog, this girl who gets trapped there, she hears the birds singing. And she later realizes they're not singing, they're crying. They're crying in agony because they're like skinned. So it seems like a really Angela car. I'd be interested to know if that was her idea. She talks about that a few times in short stories. It's just very, it's very sadistic. A lot of like boys used to tend to write it off as like being girly stuff. But Angela Carter was like 
when it came to violence, I mean, her idea of Bluebeard is a guy who, who collects the writings of Gillis de Ray and Bataille and like all this Sardian pornography and then he slits his wife's throats and he bleeds them to death. You know, there was like literally nothing girly about her at all. She there's so much violence, even in a like outside of a fairy tale, just violence in her books. That's a really weird type of perverse violence. Not it's not like mainstream violence. It always has to have a flourish to it, which I absolutely love. I love that the second transformation is so different. And this it's finally it's like we are what twenty minutes from the end of the movie when it really goes into Red Riding Hood territory. Like we've had the red cape that granny made for her that's soft as a kitten again kind of nice imagery there god this whole movie is just filled with so many symbols it's nuts like even like steven ria's head being chopped off and going into this bucket of milk i'm just like okay great i absolutely love that scene just it, it just is so poignant and tragic that he and she says, oh, he was just like the day I married him. And it's like really sad for a minute. And then that husband comes in and smashes her in the face, which is, again, it's just a really Angela Carter thing. She didn't really take to marriage early on and just saw it as like a prison. And you often get a lot of the female characters trying to escape marriage or trying to escape these like oppressive systems. But I wanted to say about the traveling thing, though. There's some interesting class stuff in this film as well. Like, travelers in Britain are largely frowned upon even now, even though they've passed laws uh, to protect people of Romani descent. We still have Romani gypsies who mainly live in council-approved sites now, but it's always that fear of the and especially where I grew up because travelers uh because I live in country we'd have a lot of travelers and it was always like that stay away from the travelers in case they steal you away sort of thing you know lots of stories about them travelers have always been something that you know because they are the they are like the underclass basically so there's something that is to be feared and then you also have this like digging at the aristocracy so you have the story about the woman who crashes the wedding party, which is very class-based. The really interesting thing is the huntsman, the wolf, is also clearly coded as an aristocrat. He's like more sophisticated than the boy in the village. He's got these wonderful clothes. But he is an interloper because he says he doesn't belong in one world or the other. But he's still like marked as a class figure, like somebody who's associated with a certain type of class. Whereas the people in the village don't change into wolves. They tend to just get eaten, which is, I think, an interesting little... I w wonder what that means. They they just become fodder for the wolf, but then you have the aristocrat who becomes the wolf himself. He doesn't belong in one world or the other, just like she doesn't belong in one world or the other at the moment. I found it very interesting that after her first kiss with the amorous boy, he goes off and then she... <laughs> mounts this huge tree <laughs> yes goes all the way up to the top of it and then we have the the stork's nest and the stork obviously very symbolic of bringing babies and there's the eggs in there and the eggs crack open and there's the stone babies the maybe a statue of jesus i'm not sure but definitely a baby in there 
And then there's also the mirror and the makeup. And I found the mirror and the makeup the most fascinating thing, that it's now suddenly she has that vanity of a woman. And also that she is wearing makeup while she's sleeping in her little bed, in her tiny little bed where this whole thing is taking place, where all of these dreams are happening. Tiny little bed with huge, uh, sometimes these toys around her look really big and i love that the toys are menacing and that they show up in the first part of the dream when alice is being chased those toys are there that fucking creepy doll with the eyes and the teeth what the fuck man get that out of here put that on the fire i think most young girls went through that phase though i don't know about heather but i certainly did when you get to like maybe about 10 also and so you're like preteen you start to experiment with like bright red lipstick and shit but yet you've still got all your little stuffed toys and everything and they do something in the labyrinth it's something she like always putting lipstick on in the labyrinth as well it was a big 80s thing now they just go out and get like a septum piercing or a tattoo or something <laughs> but we just used to put red there was a lot of red lipstick in the 80s terrible shades of red lipstick that didn't suit anyone's skin color and the blush that 80s blusher those teen magazines it was all about putting as much blusher as you could on your face and like yellow eyeshadow. <laughs> you know with enough blue eyeshadow anybody's eyes look blue but don't forget the seasonal, where people will be like, oh, you're you're coloring, you're in autumn, you're more of an autumn. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, she's a, she's a, she's blonde, so she's a spring. You mentioned lipstick with labyrinth. I always hear that old, that horrible old lady in the dump that's all like, here's your lipstick, love, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, I think it's funny because when um, we hear Alice trying to rouse her sister up from asleep at the beginning of the film and, you know, calling her past, doesn't she actually say, like, I know you got into my lipstick? Yeah. Makeup was just such a signifier then in you're becoming a woman. My mum's got these two photos of me just as I went to senior school and I look about eight, but I was 12. And the year after, and I've got like Robert Smith hair and loads of eyeliner. And my brother used to pick up the family photo album and flick the page across and go before sex after sex and it's got this like loads of 80s makeup on which i don't know if do we do that to young girls now i certainly didn't do it with my daughter but it used to be like really like a thing you'd have toys that had makeup in them and all the magazines had makeup in them and these stupid tutorials of putting like green and yellow and green eyeshadow on and all this like other crap yeah do, do we do that now it's mostly hair stuff like i went toy shopping with avery recently and in at least the little kid toy stuff it's a lot of hair things so barbie with the hair salon and changing the colors and now since it's much more acceptable to have other colored hair that's the thing where Barbie now can have blue, green, purple hair, and it's all about putting it in and washing it out and trying different colors. But I didn't see a lot of makeup stuff. Yeah, it used to be a huge thing in the 80s and the 90s, I think. Uh, my daughter was never into it, but buying for her would always be difficult because it was uh, just all these toys were like, here's how to put lipstick on and have some blusher. And like, you know, it's like putting on a uniform which boys don't have that that same thing. It's like putting on a uniform that you are 
older, I guess. The, the upside of that is I learned very early on that you could put makeup on and get it served in a bar when you were like 14. No, boys just have the problem of the hair growth that we saw in the forest, of being raped by trees, and of having your eyebrows grow together. The eyebrow thing in this is wonderful. They just never trust a man who's eyebrow. And I've always kept that line in my head since the very first time that I saw that. And whenever I see a guy with a, with a unibrow, I never fail to think of that. So the Huntsman, he's an absolutely gorgeous guy. Uh, I think he was a dancer in real life. This was also his first time on film. I think, again, he does a terrific job. There are times when I look at him and I see Taylor Negron. Oh, my God. Misha Burgess is the the actor. He, He is just so, 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 so sexy. He's also in an interview with the vampire as one of the weird, um. Oh, God, the theater, the theater day vampire. Yeah, the like crew, Grand right? Guignol thing. And, uh, Stephen Ray was someone that you, uh, he's all in every, like, Neil Jordan film. And he's in that, isn't he? He's one of those vampires. He can walk up, upside down. And, like, Santiago. I think Santiago. that was. Yes. Oh, he was so beautiful in that. I didn't know that, um, what was the name? Is it Misha? Misha Burgess, I think yes. his name is. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Because I didn't even know he was a dancer watching the film, but I remember he removes his shirt. He has that build. I, I, was, I wasn't surprised at all. He's got those wonderful movements as well, like the way he moved, like the way he cocks his head and the way he holds his hands, like little claws and his whole body uh, language is just incredible in that performance. So even though we only see him as a wolf, like right at the very end, we know he's the wolf straight away because of just how he moves. So he's like strangely sinister, but like when I was 12, he was strangely sinister, but also like the hottest man I'd ever seen. And then I saw Labyrinth and the Goblin King. So it was like (laughs) a bit of a theme around there, but he was just, there was something about him. It was like really exciting, but also really scary at the same time neil jordan when it comes to casting overall he is very good at casting very beautiful talented men i'll give him that apart from tom cruise he's he's very talented as a stat but not beef (laughs) no he's the i absolutely loved the huntsman but i also love that rosaline just it, it really just highlighted just her both her curiosity but also just her savvy and the fact that, like, we have that also amazing scene where he basically decapitates Grandma, but it's like her head is made of porcelain, and there's no blood. It's almost like there's milk. Yes, wonderful. When it crashes. It's such a striking image. You know, she wounds him and then, like, comforts him in wolf form. Like, she's not afraid of him at all. Like, she really – I think even earlier she says, you know, I, something to the effect of, like, I don't see the point of being afraid. Well, in the in the original story that Carter wrote, she like like the, the wolf strips off and shows her his cock, and she laughs at it. <laughs> and she basically says, "It's a line like I she knew she was nobody's meat. She she is like the antithesis of how the Red Riding Hood's supposed to be really scared and ooh, but she's like the opposite. She realizes that he isn't a threat. Like he's kind of ridiculous, and she feels sorry for the wolves." She's a wolf herself, so she sort of sympathizes with them, which we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to run away. 
But she, I love the bit when uh, she realizes she's wounded him and she just feels really sorry. And she talks about the walls being cold outside and how everyone's ignored them. And I just really love that about it. It's such a sweet touch, especially because it's, you know, typically, and again, this is probably one of the things why, you know, people going to this film expecting like a pure horror film were disappointed is that the monster that you think is going to be the monster isn't necessarily always a monster. And that's, again, another sort of flipping the script thing that I just, I think I, I love so much, especially basically humans, we are animals, and there's this sort of like human nature tendency to think that we're above animals and because we're on top of the food chain or whatever. But I mean, but you see, you know, and it's both good things and bad things about our nature. But it's like, you know, how are we really any better? And in some ways, we're, we're worse than, than nature. We tend to punish women more, though, for being more animalistic. If a woman kills, it's seen as an absolute deviant thing, whereas if a man kills, it's often seen as inevitable. Or, oh, yeah, this happened to him. So, you know, it's it's sort of acceptable in a way. And in certain types of cultural activities, we actually like encourage men to allow some of their wolf out like in sports or certain aggressive things it's like oh it's okay to be like it's, like, it's actually a positive thing to be like a predator in certain business situations but with women if they show any sign of that it's ultimate it's like stamped down like so any woman who's aggressive is being a bitch and you know we're really terrified to admit that as men and women aren't that different when it comes to like the beast it's just women are socialized to completely disassociate with it and which is why i love the fact that rosaline understands the wolf she feels sympathetic because she relates to it she sees that she it's just you know they're not really that much different from us i wanted to talk about this book actually i've been reading lately it came out in the early 90s and it's never crossed my path I'd like heard people talk about it, but I'd never really like got to the point where I'm going to grab it. And I started reading it recently because of working on uh, stuff to do with company called Women Who Run With Walls by this woman called uh, Clarissa Pincola Estes. And she talks about how socialized women to knock out any part of the wolf. You know, we, we tell them to, to dress a certain way, to, to behave a certain way. We eradicate anything that might be beastly within them. And she, she talks from the metaphor of folklore and she talks about the wolf woman who is this like mythical woman who she goes around in the desert. I think it's from Mexican folklore and she collects all the bones up and she turns them into walls. Like she, she creates the skeletons and she sings over these bones and they come to life as a wolf. And as the wolf runs away, it turns into a laughing woman, which I think is like a beautiful metaphor but i don't know an awful lot about the writer she seems to do like a lot of folklore comparison to talk about feminism and i do wonder whether she was inspired by angela carter because some of the stuff that she writes about is like totally in the same mold as the the things that company deal with in like a folklore it's a perfect Folklore's really good as like allegory to talk about like gender, sex, and all those things. And she does pretty much the same thing in in that women who run with walls, which is like a fucking bible. I'm just like, why have I not read this book before? It's incredible. 
just a whole I've got like whole like paragraphs just underlined because it's just like it's one of those I like how in the second half of the film Rosaline turns into the storyteller she's done with grandma's stories and now she tells her own story so telling the story of the wolf wedding and then telling the story of the girl when she's trying to comfort the huntsman who is now turned into a wolf the story there with Daniel Dax um, who I kind of remember some of her singles because she was also a singer um, what started in the early 80s, I think, and had a pretty good career. And then she ended up going on to uh, a BBC like home improvement show and winning that, I think. <laughs> so quite a quite a wild career. But I love that little story that she tells the wolf to comfort him and this whole idea of taking the world below and the world above and marrying those two together. And for me, it's kind of this decision that she's making as far as she now wants to be in that world below, because the end of this movie feels a little rushed at times. Like it took me a long time to realize that one wolf jumps at the window and there's another wolf inside and it's Rosalie with the cross on her. And then after that, it's just like, bing, 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 bing. And then the credits just roll. And then the credits are rolling while she's still talking. And I want to be like, hey, wait a second. Maybe you should let her talk. <laughs> like, stop those credits. Let, let her talk. And then you can roll the credits. The Danielle Dax thing, I think, was one of the things I think. I, I, I'm trying to remember what the VHS cover was like. But it did have, like the British one, it did have Danielle Dax on it, it naked. And it had stills from on the back, I think, where she's like in a, the wolf form and you can almost see her breasts. I mean, obviously it was mark, total marketing, but I, I wonder if that was what gave a lot of people like the wrong idea about what they were writing. Because I remember looking at the VH bo VHS box in the video shot quite a few times. I could pick it up and look at it. And it looked like a totally different film to the one that we actually got. But that segment, which isn't Angela Carter, is my favorite, actually. That was Neil Jordan. I love that segment, too. And especially because it's you have all the stories that, that Grandma tells, and they're more about like kind of fear-based. And Rosalie's, like, her two key stories, especially this one, it's complete. We have here sympathy for the wolf earlier. Like, you have the, the, the wronged woman who ends up kind of being empowering and at the end has all these aristocrats that she has turned into wolves singing to her infant, to her illegitimate child, which is such a great scene. Also in a tree, which I found interesting since Rosalie Elaine had gone up in a tree and now here's this woman in a tree again. It's conquering the cock. The actress that plays the mother in that reminded me so much of Nicoletta Elmy. Very striking looking redhead. I mean, they could be sisters. They really look so much. I almost was like, is this Nicoletta dubbed? Like, what's Yeah, she does look. It's interesting. Both of the actresses who are in the two, st in those stories, so the one who, who loses the traveling husband and then the pregnant one they both have this very particular very pale sort of look with red curly hair both of them they almost look like the same woman these like real like wild woman archetypes which i i really like that as well because they're not i don't know they're not the sort of standard look that you would get in a in a more clean fairy tale <laughs> they they have like a very sort of libidinal look to them do you know what i mean 
Yeah, very pagany. Yeah, like very kind of earthy and yeah really really the casting in this across the board is like sublime and the fact that like danielle dax who i've i'm a big fan especially like her her early stuff with the lemon kittens and her early like solo stuff is incredible and still actually much like the film we're talking about in angela carter her her early work both visually and sonically cannot really be neatly defined. She got a little more poppy later on, though some of that stuff's really good. But um, but Daniel Dex uh, has like a physicality about her that is unlike, I mean, you see her in performances and you can see why she got cast, you know, as the wolf girl, because she has a very unique physicality and just with her movements and her just incredibly long hair and the way that she uses that, you know, too. And then Mikey mentioning the as above, so below. And that's literally mentioned. And that's, of course, that's an old phrase and can be used to sort of so that basically the two worlds are connected. You know, you have the sky with the stars and you have the land, like the Terra. But it's all, we're all one, basically, when it comes down to it. Well, some of us go below, though, don't they? Some some of us like see the wolf, and we want to become the wolf. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it's almost like an ode to the the children of the night, or the the people that are slightly more perverse. To like, yeah, it is okay to go down below. You know, it might actually be more freeing and liberating to go there. It's it's a weird like. End note. All of the bloody chamber stories end on this very empowering note, though. As far as the, like, even the blue beard, it's not that she's saved by a, a father or brothers. It's the mother that comes in to save her. So it's like, it was considered so transgressive at the time that, you know, this woman comes in, this sweary woman starts rewriting the, the godforsaken fairy tales. It's like, how dare she? And rewriting them for specifically for women as well, rather than to scare women, which is what they're traditionally used for. Rosalie's mom, when they stumble upon the wolves, she like it, you know, she sees the necklace and she realizes that's her daughter, and she tries to prevent them from shooting her because she knows, and even though the father's with her, like nobody else picks up on it. Yeah, they're just like, oh, we must kill the wolf. And so I thought that was kind of a cool touch that the mother just sort of instinctively knew, like, that's my cub. Yeah, and protects her. And and then you have that great, just that, that epic shot of just everything's kind of coming together. And there's like wolves bursting through the windows of Rosaline's house, like her real house, and bursting through the walls. And it's just, it's so beautifully done. It's so big. I mean, this film is, to me, huge proof that I think when people think of visual spectacular films a lot of times their mind probably goes to just like big budget hollywood stuff lots of cgi and explosions and shit like that all of that's a waste of money you just really need like some really skilled people and a great vision because this film has such a limited budget and it's better looking than films that have five times its budget i think neil jordan said he sort of made the film as an antidote to that as well because we were right slap bang in the middle of the indiana jones uh, Steven Spielberg, E.T., you know, that huge, massive post-Star Wars boom, and you get this strange little British fantasy, low-budget fantasy film that it is, like, um, you know, a lot bigger than, than the budget, but it was, like, made in a react as a reaction to that. You had Anton First, who, who did the 
set decor on it, which is just incredible. But also the score, George Fenton's score for this. I listen to it regularly. Unfortunately, it's like not available on places like Spotify, so it's one that you have to go to YouTube for. But it's absolutely beautiful. The my favourite theme in it. It's got this over underlying theme that kind of repeats over and over again. But my favourite variation of that is the one that's the afternoon meeting when she runs away and she climbs up the tree. It's just like this big sweeping, almost like tragic sounding score that could have been made for a big Hollywood film, but yet it's attached to this weird little British fantasy film. And it's so gorgeous, I think. The composer got this all done in three weeks and they were still changing... They were still changing the editing as he was working on it, so which makes it even more difficult. It wasn't a locked picture when he was finally sat down and started to do this. That's incredible. See, I listened to that so many times. I'm not going to hem it, but when it kicks into the... <laughs> you can probably put a clip here, but when it kicks into the big wave, it just really makes me feel emotional. It's just so gorgeous. Well, and he's trying different things. I want to say during the part with Terrence Stamp as the devil showing up, he recorded himself and pitched it down. And it was kind of like a very experimental. He's doing a lot of different instrumentation. He's kind of in that, again, that liminal space between electronica and typical orchestral stuff. So he's being able to mix those things to say this is not one or the other as well. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff he did before this was like the BBC Play for Today sort of stuff and TV. And he also did this uh, TV series called Shoestring that was quite big here in the I think, very early 80s. A lot of TV stuff. But then he actually went on to do like bigger, like a lot of big Hollywood, big budget films as well. And it, and it has a bit of that. But like you said, it's also very experimental. Like one of his most recent ones actually – it was I, Daniel Blake, like, you know, like, which is like the total opposite of something like The Company of Wolves. Like, he wasn't really working in that genre or fantasy world. He wasn't stuck in any idea. Like, if you look at the Hammer scores, which are all great, they were done by the same couple of people, like James Bernard, and they tend to have like a thematic thing across the board. They become very stuck. Whereas George Fenton was coming in, he was just seemed to be throwing anything and everything at this. And I think it just turned out absolutely wonderful because of it. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with James Gracie, author of the Devil's Advocate book on the Company of Wolves. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. 
So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios this is adam spiegelman the host of my second favorite movie podcast called proudly resents at proudly and you are listening to my favorite the number one the projection booth mike put so much work into it if you listen to my show i put no work into it enjoy the rest of the show you lucky son of a gun i want to know a little bit more about you Tell me how you got interested in writing and writing about film. I think I started to take writing quite seriously in the mid-2000s. So I'd graduated from university and I'd moved back home to Northern Ireland. I'd gone to university in Aberystwyth in Wales. And I had a job as a publications assistant for the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. We put out a little bi-monthly events listings um, publication. and. I eventually, through working on that, had the opportunity to interview local artists and writers, musicians and filmmakers, basically just people involved in the arts industry. Um, from there, I started writing for a couple of local magazines and websites. You know, I really kind of enjoyed that. And I think writing about film just kind of came naturally because since my teens, I've been really into um, cinema, especially uh, horror film. So any opportunity that I could get to write about this stuff that I feel, you know, quite passionate about, I I took it. I think the first magazine that I was published in was Film Ireland. And I got to visit a film set in Belfast. It was a film called The Mighty Celt. It was directed by Pierce Elliott, I think. It was about a young boy who rescues a greyhound that's basically injured and can't race anymore. So he nurses it back to health. And it starred... Gillian Anderson and Robert Carlyle. I got to um, visit the set and basically write up a little report um, for Film Ireland. And I think that kind of really gave me the confidence then to start writing about films for other publications like Paris Cinema and Diabolique, Exquisite Terror, um, and websites like Eye for Film and uh, The Quietus. And then I set up my own blog as well, which was basically... It was just to try and sort of keep up the momentum, you know, to try and hone my skills as a writer and to become a bit more disciplined about it, to sit down, you know, every day, even if it was only for an hour, to try and, you know, formulate ideas and construct sentences and basically just try to articulate thoughts and feelings about films. What were some of those articles like that you wrote for, say, Paris Cinema or Diabolique? The first one for Paris Cinema it was about Dario Argento just a kind of overview of his films and basically kind of looking at a lot of the main themes. Um, 
I had wanted to write something about Argento for a long time since since university, basically. Like that's whenever I first kind of discovered his work and started getting really interested in reading about his cinema. And actually, the article that I wrote for Paris and a kind of a, a large sort of chunk of that sort of evolved to become the introduction for my first book, which was published about 10 years ago now. Um, again, it was sort of like an introductory work to um, the films of Dario Argento that was published by Camera Books in 2010, I think. And again, once I sort of got a bit of experience uh, and a few articles, a few published articles under my belt um, for some magazines and publications, it, it was just always a boost to my confidence. And again, it was like, you know, it sort of gave me the opportunity to publications that I was writing for anyway, to write about horror cinema. So what's your experience like with The Company of Wolves? When did you see it and what was your first impression? I think I first saw it in university. I was studying English literature and film studies, and I think there were a couple of Angela Carter texts, a module that I'd opted to do. I think it was postmodern fiction. So I was reading The Passion of New Eve and The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman. Um, and from that, I came across The Body Chamber and really enjoyed that. I'd sort of, I'd, I'd heard of The Company of Wolves before I'd read that, but I hadn't ever seen it. After I read the short stories in The Bloody Chamber, I decided to watch The Company of Wolves. That was at university. But I can actually remember seeing the video cover of that in like the local um, video rental store on the high street of my hometown whenever I was a kid, basically, and being sort of like transfixed by the artwork. And sort of had this like morbid fascination with it, you know, with the the sight of this um, wolf emerging from from someone's mouth. And on the back cover, there were stills from the film as well, which I found weirdly compelling, but also like horrific. I think it's there was a picture of, I think it's just the, the moment in the film after the granny has struck the huntsman with the hot poker and he's sort of like recoiling and writhing in agony and he starts crying and he wipes away a tear from his face with his with his tongue. That was on the back of the video in the in the video rental shop, and I was just like, I'd never seen anything like this before, and just those images always stuck in my head. And then actually watching the film for the first time was just a fantastic experience. Like I'd never really seen anything like it before, you know, in terms of gothic horror films, and especially in terms of um, werewolf films, different to any other werewolf film that I'd ever seen. How did you come to write about it for uh, Devil's Advocates? I'd been thinking about um, approaching auteur publishing for a while. Um, I, I was sort of keen to embark on another big writing project. A friend had told me about the Devil's Advocate series. I emailed John Atkinson, who's the publisher, and expressed an interest in writing something and had been able to send him some articles that I'd previously ha published. I think I'd approached him with a couple of ideas. I couldn't quite narrow it down to one film at the time, so through discussions with him, I finally decided to tackle The Company of Wolves. I think the other films that I'd approached him with were Ginger Snaps, which is sort of thematically similar to The Company of Wolves. And also, I think I think it was something like The Babadook, quite a contemporary, like quite a recent film at the time that hadn't really had a lot written about it. Um, but that was also why we decided to go with The Company of Wolves, because, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's been around since the 80s. But I think it's quite often unfairly overlooked um, in terms of its place within horror cinema and especially like uh, werewolf cinema and stuff like that. So what's your method? How do you go about 
doing your research on this and putting together what you ended up putting together? It's different for everyone, but for me, I usually just sort of throw myself into it. But I always start off with, for this book anyway, I was thinking about the main sort of the main subjects within it, the main themes, how I could break that down into chapters to sort of, you know, have various aspects of the film highlighted. I always start off by basically just uh, research. So going to the library, I went to Belfast's Central Library and I consulted a lot of books about folklore and fairy tales, horror cinema, because I also wanted to sort of take a look at some academic material. I obtained a visitor's pass for the library at Queen's University and there I was able to look at journals and many other different kinds of books that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. And again, just sort of honing in on each uh, on each sort of like subject area and drilling down into that. So I kind of wanted to start off with an overview of the you know the production history of the film, um, the source material, the filmmakers, um, Angela Carter especially um, because it's based on her um, short stories and she was also the co-writer of the film. So just a kind of like general general overview of the production and then kind of really getting into um, the the meat of it, so to speak. So it was important to also um, look at stuff like the history of folk tales and fairy tales because the film is sort of, it has a very strong feminist perspective. It was really important to kind of look at um, feminism, especially in terms of like uh, feminist approaches to uh, to cinema and feminist readings of uh, horror films as well. And obviously, um, because it's, you know, it features werewolves, I thought it was important to take a look at um, the history of the figure of the werewolf, going right back to folk tales about it and its representation in short stories, and novels, literature, and then eventually um, how it's been sort of centered and how it's changed also in popular culture, um, how it's portrayed in you know television and film and stuff like that. What did you find out about the working relationship between Neil Jordan and Angela Carter? Because I can't think of two possibly more different types of people, but they seem to work very well together for this film. Yeah, I think they really sparked off each other. You can kind of see similar themes that run throughout the work, especially when it comes to notions of identity and gender and storytelling. The art of storytelling itself is very important to both of those artists, if I can call them that. So I do think that they had a lot of a lot in common even before they sort of started working on this project together. And I think from what I'd read while researching the book, you know, it was a very good, very positive working relationship. They sat down together in the morning and they would sort of go over everything and then they would go off. And I think both sort of being writers, they kind of, they wrote in solitude and then they came back to go over what they'd done, redrafted stuff and revised it. I think the only sort of um, negative thing that I came across was apparently Angela Carter did not like the ending of the film. She felt that it sort of implied that the the main character was um, coming under threat whenever she awoke from her dreams, whereas sort of the whole way through the film, she'd been going along a very specific path, and a path of like self-discovery. But at the end, that all kind of seems to shatter whenever she wakes, and the wolves are kind of running through the house towards her bedroom. Um, she said that she wanted um, she wanted it to end. Um, there's a particular shot of, uh, I think it comes after the story of the wolf girl emerging from the well to so the story that Rosaline tells the huntsman whenever he's transformed into a wolf. Um, there's a shot of, I think it's a white rose 
that starts to turn blood red. And she said she Angela Carter said that she thought that that would have been a really good place to sort of end the film. But I think they also wanted to have Rosaline dive off the end of her bed into the floor, and the floor would basically like ripple out like water. So she was basically kind of like you know resubmerging herself again into another world. But budgetary limitations put a stop to that. Um, I think they even tried at one stage to construct a floor out of wax to kind of create that effect, but it didn't really work. So that was how um, that was how the film ended in the way that it did, which Carter wasn't happy about, apparently. <laughs> was it an easy or a difficult production? Well, it was Neil Jordan's second feature film, and I think it was also the first feature film that was produced by Stephen Woolley and Palace Pictures. Because it's studio locked, everything was all filmed within a studio. I think there are a couple of like scenes filmed on location. So the opening scene, um, we were introduced to um, Rosaline um, in her bedroom. The house where the bedroom is, I think that was an actual house. And then again, the scene with the, the wedding guests turning into wolves, I think that was shot on location as well. But everything else is studio bound. I can remember reading interviews with Neil Jordan where he talked about how it really helped production because they had total control over the, you know, the studio bound sets. They could control the the lighting and they had constructed the set so they could be moved around. I think again, because it was quite a sort of, um, he didn't have a massive budget. So I think the forest was constructed out of about, I think maybe 12 huge trees that they had on, on rollers that could be moved around to create different um, perspectives and angles. And the crew also, every time, the set was moved around or they were kind of like moving the camera to a different um, position. Um, things had to be checked so you couldn't sort of, you know, see the joins and everything. I think that actually, it really adds to the weird feel and atmosphere of the film. The fact that, you know, there is kind of like, I don't want to say artifice, but it's it's more of a kind of a heightened sense of reality. It's just, it's kind of one one step removed from reality. It's very dreamlike and, you know, as I was rewatching the movie yesterday, I'd forgotten that Rosalie's sister's name is Alice. It felt like it could have been playing with Alice in Wonderland as well as Little Red Riding Hood. Both those stories are about a young woman basically um, traversing this weird, almost psychological landscape. You know, she's on a quest. She's in search of something. I think there are a lot of references to other works of literature, other um, works of cinema and other fairy tales and stories. In the company of wolves, I think that's what makes it such a rich, uh, such a rich film, such a rewarding viewing experience. It's almost like every time you watch it, you maybe pick up on something that you've never seen before. There's definitely some weird biblical imagery as well. Various times, whenever Rosaline is walking through the forest with her grandmother, you see these huge snakes coiled around branches, sort of observing the characters walking through the forest. You often see like red glistening apples hanging from from branches in the background, and it's all sort of like like the very subtle symbolism that we were talking about earlier, making me think of temptation and you know the forbidden, and it all kind of like ties into the main themes of the of the film. There is a general notion that fairy tales are basically for children, but I think initially they were not. They were ways, I mean, they kind of, they, even before they started being written down, you know, when we had, sort of have like the literary fairy tales that we have today that were sort of based on um, interpretations of oral folk tales, um, there was always something within the stories to either 
benefit the listener or the reader, you know, to sort of guide them through, guide them on their journey through life, um, give them hope, give them something to strive for, to work for, or to kind of get them to behave in a certain way that sort of was like fitting to their, their community or their society. And, you know, there would be consequences. There would be, uh, there was always like a negative reinforcement. It's a big aspect of the film. She's sort of being told by various people in her community, oh, you, this is the way that you need to act. And, you know, these are the things that you need to do. And basically, you know, they're kind of almost setting out her life before her, before she's even had a chance to live it. She has all these standards that she needs to meet, all these um, conventions that she needs to go along with. Um, that's all sort of tied up. And this idea of folk stories and, and fairy tales um, as a sort of a moral compass. So, yeah, it's a lot of pressure on people. <laughs> Speaking of pressure, what were some of the most challenging parts of writing your book? I can't point to anything specific about writing the book, but I mean, at times um, it was difficult to sort of keep up the momentum and the motivation. I was sort of writing this book throughout um, 2016. It coincided with me also starting a master's in library and information management. So looking back at that time, I'm sort of amazed at the amount of work that I did in that that year in particular. Um, so going from um, working on the book to working on uh, an assignment for the master's, um, I was also doing a lot of voluntary work in various libraries and information services because I just started working in libraries in 2016. So I was sort of keen to get as much experience as I could. It was a very busy year, and at times it was quite difficult to keep up, you know, that momentum. I was really enjoying everything that I was doing, so I think that definitely helped. Nothing like starting a new master's program and trying to write a book at the same time. It doesn't sound easy at all. It wasn't, but at the same time, like, I, you know, I, I can't complain. I was doing, I was busy, but I was working on stuff that, you know, was not only challenging, but I enjoyed every aspect of it. Um, you know, whenever it was kind of, whenever I'd had it up to my ears with werewolves, I could just kind of like put all that stuff aside and, you know, pull out a book about the jury classification system or, you know, referencing or whatever. Uh, so I was able to kind of jump from one thing to another. It sounds like you were able to use your library skills for your uh, research on the book. Yes. The two things actually, there were, you know, certain things, certain parallels that really, yeah, there were compliment complimentary um so it definitely helped whenever it came to referencing the book um the fact that i was also studying you know referencing but also um the parallel between the history of of folk tales and how you know so many ways of thinking in our society at the moment basically trying to draw parallels between folk tales and how there's so much history of um, of our society and our communities in that. And also, you know, it's the same with libraries. You want to find out anything about, you know, the history of humankind, go to a library. They're both ways of, like, of containing our, our histories and our cultures. And, you know, that to me was, was really interesting and kind of cool because, like I say, you know, the, the two things kind of, like, complement each other quite well. So I don't imagine that after The Company of Wolves is over that you're ready to just jump into your next book project because it sounds like you're pretty involved with your master's program. Well, I completed the master's program last year, graduated last year. The next big sort of project that I'm working on is, so I've returned to my master's thesis after having a, a break from it for a year. <laughs> 
and I want to basically try and rework it as an article to get it published in an academic journal to just kind of, you know, demonstrate a commitment to the profession and um, contribute to the to the knowledge. Um, so the, the thesis is basically an investigation into how academic libraries can develop a social media policy to drive online engagement with their users. Truly thrilling stuff, believe me. Running parallel to that, I had an idea um, maybe for a couple of articles from my blog to look at how you know libraries and librarians feature in horror. It's quite often in horror films, you know, you'll have characters that assume the role of information gatherers or knowledge seekers, and there's usually a mystery at the heart of the story that needs to be solved, whether it's you know a spate of bloody murders or spooky goings on in an old dark house. Um, there usually comes a moment when research is required in order to find out what's going on. You might have characters visiting libraries or archives to fill information needs and ultimately, you know, to obtain uh, truth. So I kind of want to um, maybe write a few articles about that. Would it be using certain horror films as a, a jumping off point to talk about and advocate for libraries and library services in general? So, for example, thinking about films like like Carrie and like uh, Ginger Snaps Unleashed, just to name a couple off the top of my head. You've got characters who are basically, they're in a difficult situation. They have no one to turn to. They need information. They need to figure out, you know, what's going on internally, you know, within their bodies. They're going through changes. Um, they need to go to a safe place where they can get objective, reliable information without being judged, without being harassed by anyone. So there's a couple of points in both those films where characters, you know, they go to libraries and they consult the information and the knowledge contained there. As soon as you mention libraries, I'm just like, oh, well, yeah, there's seven. It's because the fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. And there's um, Silence of the Lambs. I think that the guy who knows about the cocoon works at a library there. And just, yeah, it, I could yes. picture how many times they go to libraries and things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or... The Harry Potter series, of course. Um, I, I even jumped over to uh, how important books are in um, Marvel's Doctor Strange. Absolutely. Places that, you know, free and accessible gateways to knowledge and information. You know, they give people opportunities for learning and to um, uh, to educate themselves to, in a way, to sort of, you know, to, to, if they need to better themselves or get out of a certain, you know, situation that, you know, usually in a horror film may or may not be life-threatening. They can also be, libraries can also be a lifeline, you know, especially for socially isolated people or, you know, vulnerable people within our communities. They can help shape ideas and perspectives. Importantly, it's sort of like a reliable and authentic uh, record of knowledge that's been gathered over generations. You know, it's a way of understanding uh, our history, a way of understanding ourselves. I think Ray Bradbury once said, Without libraries, what have we? We have no past and we have no... So, yeah, they're, you know, important institutions that need to be um, valued and protected and, you know, fought for whenever they're, uh, whenever they're in danger. I think you described it as possibly being dry, but I would be all about reading that article. That sounds fantastic. I will get right on it. James, I can't think of anything else I want to ask you, but it's been so delightful talking with you. It's been really nice to speak to you, too, and I hope this has been useful and relevant and there weren't too many tangents. 
All right, we are back and we're talking about the company of wolves. I think, Kat, you turned me on to a documentary about Angela Carter that played on the BBC back in 2018 by Jude Ho. Fantastic. It's called Angela Carter of Wolves and Women. And it is such a nice doc, beautifully made, great interviews. I love this whole thing of the different women who are betraying either characters or Angela Carter herself reading sections from her work. So well done. And I love this. It's pretty much a great biography of her because it starts at the beginning and goes all the way to her unfortunate, very early demise at what, 51, I think she was. One of the really good things about it as well is they actually had access to her private journals, which have never been published, which I would kill to read those journals. So a lot of the journals that they read out, they have like, for anyone who hasn't seen it, they have actresses like Mike said who come in and they actually act out. Part or they, they speak in her words and that actually came from her private diaries, which have never been published but it is just, it's incredible. I mean, the BBC do do some really good stuff to do with culture, but it's strange that they waited so long to do. I don't even know why. Maybe it was like the anniversary of something, but they did like a whole series on Carter. So they actually, on the BBC, on Radio 4 and on the iPlayer, they rebroadcast some of the radio plays, including Company of Wolves, but Vampirella as well. They had another program with a, a book reading program, I think it was for ra- radio and just authors talking about her. But for all of a sudden, just for like a week, Angela Cart was everywhere, which was wonderful. And that documentary is just so, I think it's a portrait of a woman who didn't quite fit into British society, who had all these ideas about class and gender that went really against everything that this country stands for. She was totally misunderstood, I think, within her own time by certain parts of culture. And now all of a sudden, like they were saying in the documentary, like now is her time. Unfortunately, she's not with us anymore to celebrate that. She never got the moment where she saw, like I think so many filmmakers and writers are coming out now that were inspired by her in the 80s. And we're, we're finally like seeing that come to full fruition which is like such a sad thing that she just had to leave us. So yeah, like I just crying at the end of that documentary because it's such a loss. Oh God, it's so emotionally effective. And they really pulled off a documentary tactic that I find that doesn't work for a lot of other documentaries, which is sort of the combination. And I've noticed this, especially with newer documentaries will have like an animated section to illustrate something being told. But here, they actually use really great artwork that is evocative of Angela's work. And on top of that, the actors that they they pick, all of that stuff is pulled off so beautifully. And it doesn't come off as cheesy or over the top or anything. Because, I mean, sometimes when documentaries have... Like, there's a Charles Bukowski documentary that I do love called Born Into This. But there's a section where they have Bono read one of Bukowski's poems and it's not right. Okay. It's not right. Bukowski had such an American voice. I do appreciate all of the accents that they have reading these things of Carter's. It's just like, okay, this is perfect. This fits her voice. The idea that you're saying, and I haven't seen this documentary about Bukowski, that idea sounds horrible to me. Anything with Bono is horrible though. (laughs) Or, or 
as Captain Beefheart once referred to him, Bongo. <laughs> but uh, it's not just the fact that Bono's Irish and Bukowski's American. It's like the you're you're having somebody who is who who has never been a part of this world. Obviously, I think somebody can understand and, and be a part of a world, even if they're from two different countries to some degree, because the human condition, experiences, etc., testicular fortitude. In the case of Bukowski, and Bono does not have testicular fortitude. I mean, I love I love Gloria as much as anybody else, but come on, like it's not gonna. It's no, no. So, but this documentary about it, it's the the actors are perfectly cast, and you have that right mix of of getting a feel like you, you could go into this this documentary knowing nothing about angela carter and you will leave having i think a good feel for for her work and that's hard to do for documentaries about writers because you know obviously with filmmakers show clips of the movies with musicians play the songs painters show the paintings but with writing it's trickier and they nailed it i, I thought it was it was absolutely beautiful and it's it made it's made me want to buy everything she's written because you know my collection's very scant and i need to fix that asap <laughs> I really love that they had the writers that they chose as well. They had Jeanette Winterson, who I don't know if you two guys are familiar with her, but she wrote a book in the 80s called Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. And it's sort of like a black comedy, but it was all about her mother's church's gay conversion therapy on her. And then they televised it. I think in the late 80s. It's so the, the TV version is just incredible. Yeah, so they have Jeanette Winterston, who I just love every time she, cause she's like really working class and she wrote this like very transgressive book. And she's just, every time she turns up in anything, she's just fabulous, but she just really got Angela Carter, like the, just the passion for Angela Carter and also Margaret Atwood as well. And I just think it was wonderful. I know they had Christopher Fraining in there. They had Christopher Fraining and Salman Rushdie, both of whom were really close friends with Angela in real life. And Fraining actually wrote a book. I can't remember what it's called. It's awful, but I've got it. And part of it is about, is it called something like The Bloody Chamber? His friendship with Angela Carter. So they had those two guys in there. But then they had Jeanette Winterston talking about the influence of Angela Carter on female writers. They had Margaret Atwood, who was somebody who also, you know, had problems in the 70s getting published because she was a woman. And they talk all about that, how fiction was very, like, male-orientated and it was very hard for women to get published. And I just love the fact that that was the choice and that they didn't just have a bunch of random male historians in there inserting their interpretation, which you often get in programs like this. It felt very much about Angela and her passion and then how that passion had touched women that had, had come up against similar, similar barriers and how she had inspired them. And I, I I just think it's such an uplifting, strong piece of documentary filmmaking in that regard. All of the choices. Maureen Littman is one of the readers who's just incredible. Kelly McDonald as well, who most people know from Train Spotting. Just the choice of all the readers, just absolutely sublime. Although, as I said to Mike and Heather earlier, when it first broadcast i did see quite a few men online moaning that they didn't talk more about angela's influence from male comic book artists or people like michael moorcock or whatever and it's like 
it wasn't really about that though. <laughs> it was about being a woman who didn't fit in and all the, she was like penniless for most of her career, which is the most heartbreaking thing about it. I remember as a kid seeing the film for Orange, or it was like, I think it was like a TV. Yeah, it's a TV uh, by the BBC thing, yeah, Orange. But because A&E over here in the States aired it, and I saw it, I want to say I was maybe like 10 or 11. And it was, it was amazing. It was so, it left a huge imprint on me. I still need to read the book, though. It's ridiculous. The book is it. incredible as well. It's like lots of humor. Well, there's a lot of humor in the show. It sounds... There's, it's, some of it is terrifying as well, but there's also like some very black humor about religious people. It's like a Jeanette Winterson, but it's like more of an observational thing. But seeing her there and talking just because she was the generation after Angela Carter. So, you know, they didn't just get in some random British male writer. They actually got somebody who was then facing, because oranges are not the only fruit. When they showed it on TV, I mean, it was just absolutely groundbreaking. But yet again, you know, people tend to not trust women authors. And especially if they are as bar pushing as someone like Angela Carter or Jeanette Winterston. So they're people that, you know, don't ultimately get as embraced by this literary community as they should be. And then years later, everyone's suddenly like, oh, yeah, that was a masterpiece. And it's like, it's like, that's not what Angela dealt with. And I think they show just how she was amazing. She was a force of nature. She would not take shit from anyone. There's a an absolute, like, kind of, I mean, in my opinion, like, almost like harrowing harrowing clip where on one of the chat shows they're on they have you know they're asking people's opinions on a book and Angela's of course hilarious and very you know not you know not sugarcoating anything but the thing that that I found disturbing was there's another female another female I sound like a robot or an alien or something the female the female the writer they're talking about is 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 a woman, but the the blonde sort of female panelist next Angela originally refers to the author as he. Yes, and then corrects herself, but it says, "Oh, it almost reads like real writing." How fucked up is that? Like that, you, and especially because like great female writers obviously are nothing new. It dates no, back no, to no, no, Heather, times, Heather. I that- saw on Twitter that there were no female writers before J.K. Rowling. God damn it. I got mansplained on the projection fair. From the truth of Twitter. <laughs> uh, well, Twitter never lies, obviously. Um, but I mean, but it's just like, it's so sad because you kind of, you always expect, and I mean, I shouldn't say always, but you kind of expect, you know, one of the one of the dude bros of that time or, or are now on Twitter to make that kind of little, you know, very revealing statement. But to have another woman, it's kind of like... Oof, you know, just that internalized misogyny is a bitch. Oh, the the British literary industry, though, has always been, like, very misogynistic. And we do tend to, like, hold up, you know, these male figures as the be-all and end-all of literature. Even though, you know, we've had some very, very strong female writers. But I think one of the things I really love about that documentary is it really actually outs how sexist and misogynistic that culture is. And it's always, it's very class-based as well. And Angela Carter, she had like a bit of a working class accent. I'm always confused about her family background because I think her grandmother was working class. So she always had, I'm not sure if her parents were though, but she was definitely had the working class ethic. 
So she was very class conscious as well. And it is, you know, not just sexist, but you are, you can be shut out for being working class. And she took on that whole industry. And even though she suffered and couldn't get published and didn't sell very much and had to take teaching jobs, she persevered. I think as a, just to take the gender part away, just as a, like a portrait of somebody battling to continue on with their artistic work despite the odds it's really really I find it really really inspiring in that way really empowering to watch you know she she stayed true to herself the entire time she didn't sell out like that woman in the panel where she was expected to you know go a few rungs down and be grateful that she was even mentioned she refused to change and I just think that's a wonderful thing because it is, it is really difficult in this country, especially in the classing. But then also if you're a, a woman who writes things like even now, it's very, very difficult unless you're JK Rowling who invented women writing. I saw that on Twitter as well. And it's just like, Oh, before JK Rowling, you know, where, where are all the wit? And it's like, hang on. Mary Shelley, for a start. That was the first one that popped into my mind. <laughs> not, not to mention her, her mother, who was an amazing feminist. And it's yeah, like, it's what, what, what? Sappho? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. Like, sweet baby Jesus. To live in a world where you think, like, women started with Ginger Snaps and Harry Potter is just a <laughs> Talking of videos, I know you guys were really impressed with the Salmon Rush team. Oh, God, yeah, those clips. I kind of want, like, that whole VHS tape that he's on. Okay, so for anybody listening, you haven't seen this documentary, they have clips of Salmon Rushdie reading passages from his stories. Okay, so far, so good. However, he is green. he's obviously on a green screen and is green screened into, like, these sort of... I don't want to say crude drawings, but very like, you know, how would you guys describe that? Crude is a good word. Yeah. And, but it's like, but it's made to look like, oh, he's a giant standing on a mountain. He's, fl- I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, it makes any kid's show you grow up with, it's going to make it look like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Mike actually, when we were talking about this before recording, mentioned public access. And I was telling him, I worked at a public access station for five, actually five and a half years, and our shit did not look this bad, okay? <laughs> I, I just wonder why they put them in. Because like you said, Heather, they have this gorgeous artwork, like all the way through. And Angela Carter's fiction, like things like the Magic Toy Shop, for example, all these little weird gadgets and little weird things. I'll tell you what came really close in a film recently to the world that Angela Carter inhabited was, I doubt you guys have, I've, I've reviewed, seen this, but the Paddington 2. Oh yeah, a pop-up I saw it. Book in, have you seen it? The pop-up book in it and the weird little circus characters really reminded me of something like Angela Carter. And it was that sort of artwork. I don't know what to call it in the documentary. So somebody deliberately because i'm sure there are other clips of salmon rushdie reading pick those and i don't know what they were trying to say by that like here is a man green screened onto a crudely drawn mountain like what what i don't don't know if that was a dig or what because it's so out of sync was he a dick to production (laughs) i don't know it's like why did they pick that because everything else is just incredibly tasteful and then you just and it comes out of nowhere and you're like and it, and it makes him look like a weird idiot. 
what if they did this with other writers? Like we have Harlan Ellison on bad green screen and we, you know, like how amazing would that be? You have, Buk- you have Bukowski, you know, reading, reading his poetry in front of a bunch of green screen unicorns or some shit like that. Like the possibilities are endless. <laughs> There are so many interpretations of Red Riding Hood, and I was really glad for James Gracie's book because he does a great job of tracing some of the history of the tale itself. And then even in the 21st century, there are so many different interpretations of the Red Riding Hood story. Um, you know, you mentioned Ginger Snaps, which I think was the end of the 20th century. But things like Red Riding Hood from 2011, I really liked that one. I rewatched that yesterday, though it was really strange because as I'm watching it, I'm like, I've seen this movie before. I remember little images, but I didn't connect that I had seen the whole thing. And I really like that our main name is Valerie, which I think is another nod back to Valerie in her Week of yeah, Wonders. I've not seen that one, I don't think. I don't, it's I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah, I'm always a bit put off by the more modern... Because after Underworld and that terrible CGI, we seem to have like a lot of like fantasy horror films with very bad CGI uh, popping up. And I'm always like a bit wary when I see anything with like a fairy tale cover. So I, I tend to avoid them now. Do you know what I mean though? There's like, there was a whole bunch of them. They're all on like Amazon Prime in the, like the straight to video section. And I used to make the joke that. Wow, so these films just look like like I'm playing a PlayStation or an Xbox game. But now, like, it's to the point where like the PlayStation games actually look better than these movies. Like the the video game industry is like surpassed, <laughs> like surpassed Hollywood. And so it's like you know Hansen and Gretel with like crossbows or something. It's just like yeah, no, I get really kind of wary of anything modern in that respect. Unless it's Asian, because they did that one for Hansel and Gretel, but it's probably why I've avoided it, because I'm a weird snob. The anthology film Trick or Treat, you have, like, in one of the stories, which I love that movie. I know some people, it's one of my favorite movies. And Heather wrote a very good piece for us on Diabolique, was shameless uh, spam there. Sorry, Mike, but she wrote... was it last year? Yeah, it, is it the last year or the year before? Or the year before, but yeah, wonderful piece on that film for us. Oh, well, thank, thank you. I, I adore that film. And you have Anna Paquin as this character who is sort of like our proxy, Little Red Riding Hood, and there's a, a brilliant kind of flip on that. I don't want to spoil it. If you guys want it spoiled, either see the movie or or even better, read my piece on diabolikemagazine.com. Uh, but, um, and actually what's cool is the, the wolves in that movie also remove their skin. Yeah, I said that segment really, I think, owes a debt to Neil Jordan, if not Angela Carter. And it was, uh, when I first saw uh, Trick or Treat, it was one of the few films, including Interview with the Vampire, that I watched two times back to, in a row, back to back, because I just really loved it. And it was the werewolf segment that just blew me away, because it was just like, yeah, this is so cool. So, so brilliantly done. I'm going to have to watch it again. I don't know when the idea of werewolves being introduced to the Little Red Riding Hood story happened, because in the original story, it is a wolf, and it's an anthropomorphic wolf because it can speak English uh, or whatever <laughs> language these were written in. So it's it's strange, and it's a natural fit that werewolves become part of the Red Riding Hood story. 
And I found it interesting, too, that in this Red Riding Hood from 2011, they are playing a lot with the same folk tales. This whole thing of the uh, David Warner, when he comes back home in, in The Company of Wolves, and he's got the what used to be the forepaw, and now it's a hand. And that same kind of story is told in Red Riding Hood about this uh, man. It was the Gary Oldman character. He goes out hunting, and he came back home with a forepaw. And then he sees his wife in bed, and her arm is all wrapped up in bloody bandages because it was actually her as the werewolf, and he had cut off her hand, which was the exact same story I heard in a literal campfire setting. Like, we always talk about sitting around campfire and telling ghost stories. I've only ever had that happen to me once, and that story was told, this whole thing of a hunter going out and cutting the paw off a wolf and coming home, and his wife was the wolf. So it's interesting. It's a, it's a mix of stuff. The CG, to your point, Cat, is a little iffy at times, though it does capture how fucking big wolves are. We always forget how big wolves are, and we're okay thinking, yeah, German Shepherd size. And then you see, like, a real wolf, and it's fucking up to your shoulders, and you're like, oh, yeah, these things are really big and super scary. It's interesting you say about the wolf, because uh, there's another one from 1997, just called Red Riding Hood with Christina Ritchie in that very weird experimental phase of her career, which I love when she was talking of t- turning into an adult from a young girl, she was making that transition and she picks some very, very transgressive, perverse films. And she's so incredible, Christina Ritchie. And she is the Red Riding Hood in that. And they've got this Russian ballet dancer as a wolf. And he's not a werewolf. He's actually a wolf. It's just like a short film, 12 minutes, by David Kaplan, who I've never seen anything else by him. It seems really hard to get a hold of. It was apparently part of a collect- half-an-hour collection that's like will cost you $60 to even look at on DVD now. And it's a really fantastic, interesting interpretation of Red Riding Hood, but it's nothing to do with werewolves. It is actually the wolf, but he's also he's played by man, obviously, this ballet dancer. But that one is also got strains of the Company of Wolves in it as well, because the Christina Rishi Red Riding Hood is very, like, she obviously has her own sexual agency, and she's much cleverer than the wolf, so she's able to outwit him. I think that one's really interesting. The reason it's sort of meshed in with werewolves is it's, I don't know, it's because it's that perfect metaphor, isn't it, for men and men and wolves. It becomes that perfect warning story for don't trust the men who are like wolves. I think that's, it just seemed like an organic thing. And obviously something Carter could pick up on and, and, to, and then make it also then about female werewolves, which is like the thing that, aren't supposed to be, which is wonderful. I wanted to take us a little off track and, and just real quick recommend the movie called Hoodwinked, which is an... I love that I'm film. so glad you I, like that. My, oh my God, I saw it on your notes because I got that one for my kids and I just absolutely fucking love that film, even though it's like supposed to be for kids. I ended up it, watching it much more than my kids did. <laughs> 
what's well, got so many great references. I seem to remember there were references to like the Maltese Falcon and like all these film noir titles, and it's told like a detective story, if memory serves. It's been here since I watched it or the sequel. I mean, but again, it's got Patrick Warburton, who I will watch him in anything, and I love him as the wolf character. It, it's so good. I'm I'm so glad that you like that one too. But it's got like these really, the granny's into extreme sports, isn't she? She's into like snowboarding and shit. And the detective character, because I haven't seen it for a while, does, isn't he like a, the, like, who's, who's the squirrel who drinks the coffee? There's like a crazy squirrel in it. I don't remember the squirrel. I mostly remember David Ogden Stiers as the frog voice, and he's like the yeah, really like suave detective. With the, the squirrel, he just drinks coffee all the time, and he talks really fast. And then Granny is like, you know, off on his snowboarding, and just it, it, it's like the woodsman in it is incredible because he's like this weird moron. I just thought it was just a really weird, for a kids' film. I remember we, I got it, just picked it up on DVD for the kids one Christmas. And I was just like, what the hell is this film? This is, this is anarchy. (laughs) One thing real quick before I forget that the Christina Ricci one had a part to it that I didn't realize was in some versions of Red Riding Hood, which is this whole thing of when the wolf is about to eat her, she has to excuse herself to go again, make water out in the forest. And I like how in that one, they add this whole like, no, no, I have to take a shit too. And it's going to really stink up your house, granny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's like really, it's rude as well. And he's like, will you, she goes off for a long time. And he's like, are you squeezing off a loaf? (laughs) And also in that one, she's made to eat her grandmother's flesh before she's invited into the wolf's bed, which I, I don't know where that comes from, but that is incredible. Well, and there's also this interesting thing that she meets the wolf at the crossroads, like not, not just in this film, but I'm talking about in the Red Riding Hood world as well, like certain versions of the story. She meets the wolf at the crossroads, which again is very symbolic of like the devil and this whole idea of the, the choice that you have to make. And he gives her the same choice. Are you going to take the path of needles or the path of pins? And I wasn't sure what the hell that meant, but thank goodness for James Gracie, who was talking about how, yeah, if you, if it's a needle, you're sewing something, it's going to stay, it's going to last. If it's a pin, it's like you're, you're pinning up the hem of a dress. You haven't really fixed it. You need to sew it, but you're getting by on temporary solutions. And she chooses the harder path. She chooses the path of needles. And then that needle that she finds in the spider web, it's such a gorgeous shot. I think it's a really well made short film. It's beautiful. I mean, I'm really sad that it's not better well known and it hasn't had any sort of restoration and it's really difficult to, although people listen, you can see it on YouTube. It's just not a great copy, but you can see how beautiful, like some of the nature shots in it, you've got this Russian ballet dancer who is incredible as the wolf. He's like this weird goth wolf with like crazy hair and yeah he looks like he's gonna come out of the dead or alive video or something yeah he's just like yeah he's got pete burns hair (laughs) 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 so so gorgeous all right let's go ahead and take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show there's a friendly motel we like a room for the night come on inside i'll fix you up featuring a heated pool and competitive sports 
Ryder and Farmer Vincent tend a garden. Their famous secret garden for very special guests. Drop in. You just might die laughing. Motel Hell rated R. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Motel Hell. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Heather. So, Heather, what's new with you? I am currently working on an article about undersung electronic music pioneer Ruth White, as well as some bigger book-sized projects. In the meantime, you can read both my interview with the dolls behind the Muses podcast and my article on skin, a history of nudity in the movies over at diabolicmagazine.com. And Kat, what's keeping you busy? I'm just in the commentary on The Beguiled, which I actually quoted a lot of stuff from Women Who Run With Wolves and mentioned Angela Carter on that because there's some animalistic women in that film, which I'm sure will upset some Clint Eastwood fans, but not taking it back. And again, my Patreon, Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. I'm doing vlogs and blogs and trailer commentaries and all sorts of exclusive stuff on there, which you will only get if you're a Patreon. And I just did, a, a like I said, a blog just on not necessarily the plot of The Company of Wolves, but just how impacting it was on me. And I was just very oversharing about my teen sexuality. So, you know, all for the love of Patreon. If I could chime in, I highly recommend everybody checking out Kat's Patreon because I I have a Patreon of it. And that latest piece is fucking brilliant. It is so good. And I think it's important. Like everybody, if you, if you love, if you love writing, if you love great artists, you know, support us, you know, and support Kat because she's doing, she's doing the Lord's work over there. Oh, Heather. I'm going to start having to pay you like some sort of royalty for <laughs> <laughs> we sound good <laughs> no money needed here madam can i just say we're planning to record a episode of house bows this moment because we've been on hiatus again for ages mine and heather's podcast and we've got uh something planned for halloween though because last year we came out and we did our fertility right to tom atkins for halloween so we're going to try and like I don't think we'll ever re- we'll ever overdo that, over top that, because that was just incredible. We're going to try and do something as good <laughs> this Halloween, as good as as epic. It's going to be big. It's going to be bold. It's going to be badass. Um, it won't be quite as horny, I think, as the last one, but uh, but it's going to be, I think, absolutely a hoot and a holler. We're very excited about it. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You are looking good You're everything A big bad wolf could want Listen to me Little Red Riding Hood I don't think little big girls should Go walking in these spooky old woods alone
my sheep suit on Until I'm sure that you've been shown That I can be trusted Walking with you alone this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.